Welcome to another episode of Facts. We're glad you've joined us on this beautiful uh, Monday evening. Uh, I don't know about you, but here in South Carolina, it has been hot and muggy. Not sure what the weather is in other places where you are, uh, but we're excited to take this session that we've been doing kind of along the way, hitting the, the Gospels that we see in the New Testament, looking at their history, looking at their transmission, their usage in early church history, as well as their understanding of the early church and how they saw them as canonical and from apostolic eyewitness accounts from the very, very beginning that it wasn't something that was chosen later at Nicaea, as we discussed last week. If you missed that episode, make sure you go back and check out that episode because we dealt with the myths that are behind this idea that in 325 AD, people sat down in a council and said, these are in, these are out. There was far more going on hundreds of years before that, a couple hundred years before that, and we looked at different testimonies. So make sure you go back and see those. If you missed any of those on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, I welcome you to go back to that as well. But we're turning a little bit into a different direction, but under the same topic, we're talking about gospel accounts. Uh, there were more than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that circulated in the early church, and they were talked about by early fathers, recognized by those in church history. And so we do not want to uh, neglect that idea because uh, we're not hiding anything, and that's something that needs to be understood. We're not hiding some sort of conspiracy like, well, there were no other gospels. The churches didn't use them. No, they they knew of other gospels. In fact, many of the ones they mentioned in their writings, we don't have access to uh, anymore. We wish we knew what they said in their fullness. Some of them are missing and lost. Some have been found just in the last couple hundred years. And we're going to look at one of those today. So we want to welcome you. Uh, thank you for joining us. And one of the things we want you to do this week is make sure that you are asking questions, put it in the chat, have good discussions about this, because there is good information in these accounts that have been recently discovered, like the gospel of Peter. Some of you may have joined uh, today, whether that's through YouTube or Facebook, or you're listening on Spotify or Apple or any other kind of avenue that we send our material through, and you're going, what in the world is this title all about? What's he saying a cross that speaks. Uh, in fact, I posted this on Facebook earlier today, had a bunch of question marks sent at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and that's all right, because uh, that indicates typically that uh, many of these viewers and many of you who are listening have not read the Gospel of Peter. And that's what we're going to talk about. And I love the Gospel of Peter. Uh, it was probably one of my favorite uh, I would say tasks that I had to do as part of an assignment that I had to do was translate the fragment itself. It was not easy to do. I, I assure you that the Greek was a little bit sloppy. I did not enjoy trying to make out certain letters. Uh, thankfully, there are a few, very few, who've done transcripts of the manuscript, but I had to go back and forth because even in some of the transcripts, they were unsure as to what some of the letters were. And there was also some page breaks and things like that. But let's jump right in. Let's not waste any more time. If Again, thank you for joining uh, this evening. Uh, follow us on Explain International. Facts is a part of a bigger uh, network than itself. We represent multiple apologists and multiple apprentices. Some of them are in the comment section right now. It's good to see uh, many of your names there. Let's jump into our lesson today, going into, did the cross of Jesus speak? And again, uh, the best I could come up with in a picture form of this was a giant Jesus. Uh, and that looked like the best picture I can come up with. And there's a reason for that. Uh, when we get into this, you'll see more of it. So let's take a look and study the gospel of Peter just for the little bit of time that we have. Let's get some background for this study. Um, it was in 1886 in modern, well, what we call an Egyptian modern day city of Akhmim. Uh, the Gospel of Peter was discovered by a French archaeologist named Urbain Boriant. Now, he has his own transcript of this manuscript. In fact, I used much of his work and his summaries of this manuscript itself. He discovered it, but it was kind of in an interesting place. The manuscript was found while they were doing an excavation of a tomb 
and it was buried with a man. Now we don't know the details of it because it seems like the manuscript is not in the same timeline as the person who it was buried with. It could be that the individual was relocated or somebody later buried work with the man. Cause back then a lot of times if somebody did a lifetime amount of work on a subject or a study or a teaching, they would be buried with their work. Uh, but we don't know. We really have no other information other than that. It was found. It was buried with a monk, an Egyptian monk, and uh, not all of it survived. In fact, it was not just the gospel of Peter. It was also the apocalypse of Peter that was attached with it. So apparently this individual or somebody at one point who owned this manuscript saw great necessity in studying these apocryphal or pseudo-apocryphal books uh, that were Petrine, uh, dedicated to the writings of Peter. Now, the fragment is dated anywhere between the 8th and 9th century, and we know that pretty much from the paleography uh, but looking at it, it consists of 14 total sections, and it breaks down into what some have put it into 60 total verses. And it covers really a very important part. It's a much bigger gospel than what we have, but it covers almost the entire end of the gospel. And it goes from the, the trial of Jesus into his burial and his death and his resurrection. And it covers that. And then it goes into a discussion about the disciples and wham, it cuts off. We don't have anything after that. And there are no other helps of this document. We don't have any other manuscripts. Uh, even in, in some of the other ancient languages, we do not have enough to reconstruct the whole entire gospel of Peter only from this important find. It went missing for for over a thousand years. But we do have reference to it uh, in church history. Uh, Serapion is at the end there, writing around the time of the century, turn of the century. He said this about the gospel of Peter. Most of it belonged to the right teaching of the Savior. Now, don't miss that point. He is making it clear that not all of the documentary in this is wrong and all the data that it is in it is wrong. And that's one thing that I'm going to look at at the very end. We'll wait till we get to that point, that there is value in reading these documents as they come to us through archaeological discoveries, uh, through ancient citations. We should not just say, well, it's not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's really not important. It's not inspired. That has been a mentality in the Christian faith for a while. If it's not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who cares? Let me tell you why that is a, a bad way to go about this. Now what has taken place is uh, gospels like this and others have been discovered and researched, and now they are being used as a point of attack against the four gospels we have. And this is the argument that is made. Basically that all gospels were created equal. Some were chosen, some were kicked out. This would have been a kicked out. And unfortunately, because it didn't make the cut or didn't have as good of debates in its favor, it was exterminated and ruined and destroyed and, and many burned because of the dislike. There was such a bias and a prejudice towards those who supported Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that the rest were just trashed. But now that we've seen some of these, we realize, oh, there were more than four accounts. And now the war has been called out against Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the fact is, is most people that I have a discussion with outside of guys like Dr. Robert Price, who has written extensively on these books, but those who have never examined these books before, have actually done the research and comparisons to the modern uh, translations or even to the textual data that we have of our Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John against these and said, hey, who's copying who? Which one has first century tendencies? Which one has different religious bringing that didn't come until after Jesus? When you're looking and weighing at these, nobody has done the data. It's just all are created equal. And Christians don't know how to answer this because they too are unfamiliar with the content. So what we want to do as believers is familiarize ourselves with these texts and say, hey, there may be things in them that we need to know to defend the faith. And there may be some things in them that are historically helpful and accurate. So let's not just write these off. Uh, and by the way, if you've just joined us as well, there should be 
uh, in the comment section, uh, a pinned statement with a link to City Light Seattle's website. I did a English translation of the Gospel of Peter. Uh, if you're watching this, uh, I would love your feedback on the translation. I even left footnotes of different Greek words that could have been translated differently and where I even added words to supply um, and some of them I tried to be, be very accurate as possible, but there were some really weird statements that just wouldn't convey English understanding as well. So I had to kind of like insert a few supply words in places. And I tried to give data when I did that. But if you would click that link and check it out, read this story of the Gospel of Peter. I did my own translation of it during my doctoral work. Now back to Serapian here, who said that there were many places that had the right teachings of Jesus but that some parts might encourage, might, and I underline that, might encourage its hearers to fall into the heresy of Docetism, which was a Gnostic teaching. And we're going to show some elements in this gospel account where it seems to lean that way. But I really, to be honest with you, when I wrote my final research for this for class, I was convinced off of this statement that there was definitely going to be Gnostic flavor. By the time I got to the end of the research and the translation, I was not as much convinced. Um, many of it was inaccurate or weird, or at times there's some sort of trying too hard mentality to prove something. But as a whole, I didn't find it as Gnostic. Why? Because I did this one after the Gospel of Thomas and after the Gospel of Judas and after the Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of Truth. And this was mild in comparison uh, to what was seen in those Gospels when it came to Gnostic tendencies or even Docetism showing itself up in those documents. Uh, Origen had something to say about this as well. Very short. Uh, he said, the Gospel according to Peter, as it is called, and that was in his commentary of Matthew. And one of the things that he noted there is he was trying to use this document along with another document attributed to James is that that Mary maintained her virginity, that the perpetual virginity of Mary was taught within this document. Now, what we have of the Gospel of Peter, we can't see that. But apparently, if Origen is referring to the same document, it seems like perhaps this document had that teaching in it. But those are the two main church fathers. But there are other documents in the mid to late second century known as Second Clement, who actually quote from the Gospel of Peter. Now, 2nd Clement should not be confused in the authorship with 1st Clement. In fact, Eusebius did an entire paragraph on the church fathers accepting or believing that 1st Clement was done by Clement of Rome, who was a follower of Paul and Peter, uh, mentioned by Paul in Philippians, but that 2nd Clement was not given the same authorship. Now, having done work on both 1st and 2nd Clement, it will not take you long to figure out that the writers seem to be completely different and totally uh, different in their mindset and theology on some things. So uh, understand when we talk about second Clement, do not confuse it with first, first Clement, or for that matter, even the writer behind first Clement. We really don't know who was behind the second Clement letter. However, it does quote a lot of scripture and it is interesting to read. And I encourage anybody to read it, but it seems to quote the gospel of Peter, which is, similar to phrasing in our uh, canonical gospels. Notice the words here. For the Lord saith, ye shall be as lambs in the midst of wolves. But Peter answered and said unto him, what then? If the wolves should tear the lambs, Jesus said unto Peter, let not the lambs fear the wolves after they are dead. And ye also fear ye not them that kill you and are not able to do anything to you, but fear him that after you have been dead, hath power over soul and body to cast them in Gehenna fire. Similar to what we see in the gospel accounts, don't fear him who can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul and Gehenna fire. Similar phrasing, but this was quoted out of the gospel of Peter. And there's even this additional discussion about lambs in the midst of wolves, Peter answering Jesus about it, and Jesus giving that same verse we see in our gospels in application to this question. Now, again, we don't have this section in the fragment that we have of the, the gospel of Peter, but it could be that we have a preserved statement in this letter of Second Clement that is no longer with us. We do not have, at least to date, that could change. Discoveries happen all the time. So when we're talking about dating this gospel, so there's some background. It has early attestation. You have Origen, you have Serapian, you have 
uh, Second Clement quoting from it. Uh, Eusebius talks about it briefly. But Bart Ehrman actually dates this gospel writing to the early second century, considering it had been compiled based on oral traditions of Jesus. So he does not believe it is a manuscript tradition or transmission of those manuscripts as much as it was based on an oral tradition. And somebody wrote the gospel with that understanding. And actually, I agree with that. uh, And we'll talk about that at the end. But I actually agree with that. It does not appear to be copying a manuscript. Now, you'll see in this that the Gospel of Peter is taking canonical gospel material and building on it, really actually making it more, uh, saying more, giving details that are not in the four Gospels that we have. So it's clearly based out of the four Gospels we have, but it's not really sitting there quoting it and copying it like you see in the Gospel of Thomas, which we'll get to, or even in places like in the Gospel of Judas. So there are places here that seem similar, but really not that much. And it could be because Dr. Ehrman is right. It's based on an oral tradition more than a written one. Raymond Brown actually affirms and agrees on this assessment. And the original author was writing the narrative from his recollection and of the teachings rather than copying an earlier manuscript. He theorized the idea that the text is based on what the author remembers about the other gospels. So Raymond Brown is saying, look, the writer of this had teachings from the other gospels. This is post four gospels of the, of the new Testament, which to me, if we're looking at the dating and I'm going to talk about this in a minute, it seems like if it's quoted in second Clement, which most would believe is mid second century into the early third century, that it would precede that. But if what Raymond Brown is saying is correct, that it is after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there's indicators of all four gospels being after those four, because it seems to allude to all four of those. But if that is the case, then it is somewhere sandwiched probably between 100 and 200 AD which would give it a second or third century era. And and that's where most scholars would land on it, is that it's early, mid-second century. I would say it's somewhere around 150, maybe even 135. Uh, But now some would say it's even earlier than that, and we'll talk about him in a minute. But as I just stated, Second Clement places itself by most in middle to late uh, second century into the third, possibly. And and since it's quoting from it, it's got to be earlier than it. That is why most scholars, again, place it where they do. Now, Craig Evans argues that the Gospel of Peter was written in the second century to counter anti-Christian polemics of that time. Uh, And and that would make sense because that was already taking place uh, by others, especially in the church father times. So it could be Craig Evans is right about its purpose, which would definitely put it around that mid-second century mark, uh, as others have stated and others would agree. But then you see another guy. And he's a little bit odd in some of his opinions, though some would say very wild. He at least gives you something to think about. And that's John Dominic Crossan. Now, John Dominic Crossan believed that the narrative of the cross that you see in this story predates Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, I don't agree with Crossan, but he makes some interesting points. But again, he has a hypothesis without evidence and really no point of reference to go back to except for the mathematical equations of A plus B. And this one seems to be following this. This one is not based on a written text, but an oral one. So that makes it earlier. He has his reasons. They're not incredibly Uh, ignorant to to have, but at the end of the day, it's a hypothesis without evidence. But he has this position that the gospel of Peter actually did come after the synoptics, but that there was a source behind the gospel of Peter, he calls it the cross gospel, that supplied the material for the later gospel of Peter. So it's not that he believes the gospel of Peter precedes the synoptics, but that its source, the cross gospel, does precede the synoptics. So that's kind of interesting. So most scholarship would place it after the synoptics and John. Uh, Some, like Crossan, would say some of the material precedes those Gospels. But is there anything internal? Now, I don't want to spend too much time here because I want to look at the material itself. and I don't want to bore you with a bunch of background work. But the internal data does give us some indicators that I believe would point to a post-70 AD 
and later because of wording in it. Like in verse 25, I think it's probably one of the most important uh, verses for helping us date the gospel of Peter. It says this, and everything you see today in the wording is my translation of the gospel of Peter. It says, then many of the Jews, elders, priests, having realized what evil they had done to themselves, began to weep and say, woe unto our sins. The judgment has come near and the end of Jerusalem. Now, the end of Jerusalem. So what it's saying here is that the Jews, you don't see this in synoptics, by the way, or, or John, the Jews repent after they kill Jesus and have him crucified. There's a level of of Jews from priests and the elders, many, not all of them, but many of them sat there and wept and realized that they crucified an innocent man and they began to weep. And they said, woe to our sins. The judgment has come near and the end of Jerusalem. So they were almost indicating in their statement as the writer was posing this, that the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple that came from that fall was a result of them crucifying the savior. Now, if that is true, that would give us an indicator that this was written after the fall. It wasn't that these Jews were prophesying that this would come. It's almost like somebody was writing this and saying, see, the Jews recognized what they did, and they're the reason that Jerusalem was taken from them. They're the reason they lost it. In fact, one of the things you're going to find extremely fascinating about the Gospel of Peter is I do not believe it was written by a Jew. You say, well, how can you say that? It is very anti-Semitic. Now, if it's a Jew, it's a Jew who does not like his own people. There's a lot of blame going on the Jewish people in this gospel and freeing up a lot of Roman people, which we'll see in just a minute. The writer could have been looking back at the destruction and connecting it to the sins of the Jews for crucifying the Son of God. This could be a hint that the gospel is written post-70 A.D., now, the authorship behind this gospel has been disputed. Nobody knows. We just don't know. There's no ancient claims. But within itself, it's claiming to be Simon Peter. Just to clarify, he's letting you know, I'm Simon Peter. Uh, in one of the verses, in fact, it's the last verse before the manuscript cuts off. These are the very last words of the manuscript. But I, Simon Peter, and Andrew, my brother. So that doesn't leave us with any question as to who this is. Having taken our nets, fishermen, departed out to the sea. And that's it. That's where the manuscript cuts off. There's no more there. But the writer is claiming to be Peter. And as we have discussed with the canonical gospels, they all intentionally left their names out of the accounts in this manner. Meaning none of them came out and said, I, Matthew, I, uh, you know, even Luke himself, though in Acts, he uses that third person, we, our, us. He never says himself as Luke. Mark never calls himself Mark. Um, or even John, who came probably the closest to giving himself away, called himself the disciple whom the Lord loved and even used a third person uh, pronoun when describing our testimony. But as a whole, we saw all of the reasons. And if you missed that, go back and listen to those. We've seen all the reasons why the synoptic gospels and John did not use that style of writing. And we talked about that in comparison to other ancient Greco-Roman texts doing biographies of individuals, even looking at Josephus and the war. There were They were not trying to make the biography about them, and they deferred their own praise and glory onto giving credit to the one whom they wrote, and that was Christ. In these Gospels, this is the unique thing about all of these Gospels, and we'll see it with Thomas, we'll see it with Mary, they have no problem making claim to the apostolic names. Now, instantly we should go, well, that's cool, but on the other hand, we should go, why? We saw why they didn't do it in the first century. Why are these accounts making it very clear who they are? Remember, if you're going to sell a letter and it's going to have a story about the life and ministry of Jesus, you better have eyewitnesses' names on there. It's no good to anybody in the church, and they would never buy it if you did not have apostolic eyewitness accounts. Notice that the that's what made Luke so unique and Mark. It's like, what are you benefiting by putting their names on these accounts and crediting it to them? They weren't eyewitnesses. They were recording eyewitnesses. But if you have Peter's name, and if you have Mary Magdalene's name, and you have Judas's name, and you have Thomas's name, those are eyewitnesses. Of course, they're going to stick their name on there. If you're trying to sell it, 
you need to have names of those who were with Jesus and commissioned and authorized by Jesus. Naturally, the forgeries go really in depth and go really sales pitch and a big sales pitch to tell you that they are an apostle or that they were an eyewitness that was there and they're telling the story from their perspective. And we discussed that's not how this went because we know from many citations that Peter's gospel was truly Mark's. Not this one, but Mark's. We've seen multiple citations of that. Again, if you missed that, please go back and see those. But they did not use, when putting this gospel together, Mark and Peter, Mark did not use Peter or even reference Peter in the first person, but rather he used what we looked at from Bauckham's work of the inclusio eyewitness format. That's how he described himself in those accounts as an eyewitness by giving him the precedence and the and really primary eyewitness scenery from day one to the end of the gospel. Peter's the guy. We see that in his gospel that was truly accounted to him by the earliest attestation of fathers and by the evidence of leaving Petrine fingerprints all through the gospel of Mark. Here, not so much. In fact, what we have of it, Peter isn't really as common as what you see in Mark's gospel, except for right here when he says, I, Simon Peter, and Andrew, my brother, giving you clear indication of who he was. So what are some of these differences? Let's talk about the differences here. What are some of the differences from the canonical gospels? Well, let's start with one. Now, we're not going to be able to do all of these, so bear with me. I picked some of the best ones I could come up with so we could spare some time for questions. But number one, uh, Pilate is practically reprieved of the crucifixion in this writing. Verse one, right off the get-go. But none of the Jews washed their hands, not even Herod, nor any among his judges. And since they were not willing to wash their hands, Pilate stood up, and then Herod the king commanded that the Lord take and be taken away, saying to them, what I have commanded you to do, go do. Now, just a reminder, this translation is my personal translation. Uh, you want to check and fact check some of my Greek translation here, feel free. Uh, but look at these words. The Jews refused to wash their hands. We see in the gospel accounts of the canonical gospels that Pilate washed his hands. And we're assuming that happened here because it kind of picks up in the middle of a paragraph that we don't have. But it makes it clear the Jews didn't and Herod didn't and the judges didn't. But you know, Pilate did. Uh, and Pilate here is not the one commanding Christ to be crucified. Herod is. Well, that's interesting. Again, this is very anti-Jew in a lot of places, fully blaming the Jews for Jesus' crucifixion and almost letting Pilate off the hook. But is that what we learn from the gospel, the true gospel of Peter, the gospel of Mark? In Mark chapter 15, verse 15, we read these words. <clears throat> Intent on satisfying the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus flogged, he, Pilate, handed him over to be crucified. You see the difference there. Pilate washes his hands, says, I'm clean of all this. He stands up and Herod starts speaking before he can even say anything and says, have the Lord taken away what I've commanded you to do, do. Herod's giving the command. Herod is commanding him to be killed, not Pilate. These are major differences between the canonical accounts. The second one is Joseph, which it doesn't say Arimathea in the Gospel of Peter, but we would assume it's the Joseph of Arimathea, who asked for the body before the crucifixion. Now, this one was easy to miss. In fact, I'm glad I, I don't remember how exactly I caught it because I kind of went through it two or three times and I found this one later after double-checking my work, but I never noticed it until actually reading it to critique my own work. Joseph asked for the body of Jesus before the crucifixion. Notice the words in verse three of the gospel of Peter. Now, Joseph stood there, who was a friend of Pilate and of the Lord. Now, that, that is unique. We do see that he obviously had a connection to Jesus in the synoptics. But what this gospel tells us is he had a dual friendship. He was a friend with Jesus and a friend with Pilate. And because he was buddies with Pilate, he went and asked about the body of Christ. Notice what it says. And knowing that they were about to crucify him, they were about to do it. He didn't do it yet, but about to do it. He came to Pilate and asked for the body of the Lord for burial. So he came before the crucifixion. 
Whereas in John 19, verse 33 through 38, we see a completely different story. John's account tells us that Joseph came to Pilate after Jesus was pronounced dead. Just read it in John 19, verse 33 through 38. He came after Jesus had died and said, can I have the body? And Pilate was like, is he even dead at this point? Sent out his servants. Uh, the centurions went out and stuck right into the side of Jesus, came out blood and water, confirmed he was dead. So that was after, not before. We see a difference here in the canonical gospels from the gospel of Peter. A third one is the criminals on the cross. Now, this is a beautiful scene. I, I would honestly say there's a part of me that, you know, when you read some of these stories, you don't have a lot of details in our gospels. You do in Luke's when it comes to the thieves on the cross. Now, the others mention that these criminals were on a cross and that Jesus crucified between two of them, but the conversation that was going on is only recorded by Luke. And even then, we would consider that conversation to be one of the most awesome and awestruck passages in Scripture where, where a thief or a criminal on the cross looks at Jesus and says, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. One of the most beautiful passages in the entire New Testament is between Jesus and the thief on the cross. Well, the gospel of Peter has its own story about those thieves or those criminals on the cross. Uh, the one does not rebuke the other, as you see in Luke's gospel, but rebukes the centurions and the crowd of people, particularly the Jews. Notice what it says in verse 13 and 14. Then one of the criminals scorned them, them being the crowd, saying, we have been made to suffer for the evil that we have committed. Not far off from what Luke said, that thief said to the other thief on the cross. But this man, having become the savior of men, interesting, what wrong has he done to you? Now, he's talking to the ones who just put him on the cross. He's saying, look, we get it, okay? I deserve to be on this cross. This guy doesn't. Now, again, he, he's directing this at the crowd and those that crucified Jesus, not the other thief. And being angry at him, they demanded that his leg should not be broken so that he would die being tormented. So the crowd feels guilty and struck by this. And they say, you know what? Let him suffer longer up there. Don't break his legs. He'll die quicker that way. Let him suffer for a little bit longer because they were angry at his response. Now, this is a totally different setup than what we see in Luke's gospel. It differs from the discussion we see here. It says one of the criminals in Luke 23, 39 through 41, who were hang railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, not the crowd, him, the one that said, save yourself and us. Do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Now that is consistent with the gospel, Peter, but this man has done nothing wrong. Very different, very, uh, a whole new dynamic to what's going on on the cross between discussion of the thieves and Jesus and the crowd, very different. The fourth one is the cry of Jesus on the cross. And this one is probably the most eye-catching of all of the variances between looking at this account and the gospels that we have, particularly, obviously, Matthew's gospel, because you see Jesus saying out loud on the cross, power, my power, you have forsaken me. It's a statement. Power, my power, you have forsaken me. Not why have you, but you have. And having said this, he was taken up. Now the words here in Greek are dunamis mu a dunamis. And it literally means power, strength. You have left me. This strength hath left me. Now, this is where people get really interested in this statement as Gnostic. This is where docetism gets its label slapped onto this gospel right here in this phrase. Now there's major implications in this. Think about this between the difference of what Matthew records in chapter 27, verse 46, and going into what he was quoting on the cross, there was really Psalm 22, verse two, where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Now with that, there's major implications. Fulfilled prophecy. But could it be that the writer did, maybe, possibly, have a docetism influence in here? And we're going to talk about this in a second. Because there's a second phrase, not just power, my power, you have forsaken me, but also the phrase, and having said this, he was taken up. And it is often seen that this idea derived from docetism. In fact, F.F. Bruce, who is a wonderful, wonderful scholar, uh, said this about that phrase. The docetic note in the narrative appears in the account of his death. It is carefully avoiding, or it avoids the saying that he died. It's avoiding the terminology of death preferring to say that he was taken up as though, or at least his soul or spirit itself, was assumed directly from the cross of the presence of God. We should see an echo of this idea in the Quran. Hmm. Then the cry. Now look, this is, this is what really makes me pause and go, you know, maybe there is docetism because there's other places where I go, mm, I don't see it. Because there seems to be an opposite teaching about death, which we'll look at in a minute. But this cry is reproduced in a form which suggests that at that moment, his divine power left the body. It left the bodily shell in which it was taken up temporary residence. Now, remember, in Gnosticism, uh, you have a teaching that Jesus was a man and that the God man, so to speak, or uh, Jesus, this being, not, not God, man, in the sense of what we believe he was 100% God, 100%. That's not what they believed, but that he was a divine being who came and we'll get into this. Uh, and I'm, we'll get into this more with the letter between, uh, Peter and Philip. We'll talk about that one and we'll see the theology behind it, but that this being came on to a man at his ministry, particularly at the baptism where he says, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. And that that spirit fell on him at baptism, but abandoned him at the crucifixion. And that's what we see here. And that's what F.F. Bruce is saying, that the divine power that came upon that human abandoned the body at the time of death and took up it to the presence of God away from its temporary residence. That's what F.F. Bruce is saying. And, and quite frankly, it's a good argument. It makes a good argument for it being docetism. Now, the resurrection scene is really quite interesting in of itself, uh, all the way from verse 35 to 37. I'll read it to you again in my own translation, uh, and you can follow along if you have the, uh, the comment there that's pinned with the article. You can read along if you're not able to read the screen because you're on an iPhone or something like that, and these words look too small for you. It says, now during the night is the Lord's Day dawn Sunday, when the soldiers stood guard in pairs of two at, um, at each watch, there was a loud voice from heaven and they saw the heavens were open. And from there, two young men came down, having great radiance approaching the tomb. Then the stone, which was placed at the door, rolled away on its own. And I underline that and partially gave way and the tomb opened, and the two young men went in. So we have some issues here. We have some differences. One, who rolled away the stone. In Matthew 28, verse 2, it says that the angel came down and rolled the stone away. And not only did he roll it away, he sat on it. And notice the words of Matthew 28. And behold, there was a great earthquake. The angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came down and rolled the stone and sat on it. Now, according to what we just read in the gospel of Peter, it rolled away on its own. But the details in Matthew's gospel are different, that an angel came down, rolled it away, and even sat on it. The second thing that we should note in there is, was the noise a voice or an earthquake? So did we have an earthquake happening or a voice from heaven happening here? Because in that same verse we just read, Matthew 28, verse 2, it says that it was an earthquake, whereas Peter's gospel here says it was a voice from heaven. Though it does not tell us who that voice was, very likely... It was probably, we'd imagine, the voice of God. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came back, rolled the stone, and sat on it. As we saw, it was a great earthquake, whereas Peter's gospel, this alleged Peter's gospel, says it was the voice of heaven, from heaven. Number six, another major one to consider, Jesus coming out of the tomb. This is fun. 
Notice this long uh, phrase from verse 38 through verse 42. Therefore, having seen this, the soldiers woke up the centurions and elders. I underline that. It's important. We'll come back. For they were also keeping watch and they were describing to them the things they had seen. Behold, they saw three men, three men coming out of the tomb with the two young men, the ones that came down and entered into the tomb. Remember, it said the tomb only opened just a little ways and they went in. And they were supporting or holding up the one, the one being in the middle, that would be Christ. And a cross followed them. All right, now this is where it gets weird. This is where it kind of gets mystic. Um, very odd and likely symbolic. And the head of the two, the young men, reaching into the heavens. But the one of whom they led out by the hand his head reached beyond the heavens and they heard a voice from the heaven asking, did you preach to those who sleep? And a response was heard from the cross saying, yes. Now, if you missed this and maybe you dozed off while I was reading it, I want you to hear this. What we have here, just reading it plain without understanding any symbolic nature or any kind of, you know, symbolism. What we have is two giant angels who are tall enough to reach the sky. And Jesus comes out of the tomb. The cross is just kind of tagging along, following behind him. He's so tall. He goes above the angels. He's taller than them. He goes beyond the heavens. And then this voice comes down from heaven and says, did you preach to those who sleep or those that were dead? And Jesus didn't answer. The angels didn't answer, but the cross did that random cross coming out of the tomb says, yep. <laughs> yes. Uh, so we have a talking cross and a giant Jesus. That's what we have here. A giant Jesus and a talking cross. Now I do believe much of this is symbolic, but let's take this down one at a time. Look at some of these differences. So do we have to ask this question? Were the soldiers awake or knocked out in Peter's gospel? they're awake in the gospels that we have, the canonical gospels, they're completely knocked out. Matthew 28 verse four makes it clear that they were scared and they passed out like dead men. This account claims they're awake and talking. <laughs> also, there's other miscellaneous details that are in that first phrase that I highlighted for you. That is that some of the elders camped out at the tomb, not just centurions, elders, people, from Jerusalem came that were part of the leadership who wanted Jesus dead. They came and camped out with the soldiers. We do not see that in the gospels of the canonical uh, texts. And the centurion in this story it wasn't in the paragraph I read is named the guy who's in charge of all of these soldiers. His name was Petronius. Now we'll talk about that more in a minute, but that's interesting. A name is given to the leader who is in charge of watching over Jesus's tomb. But let's continue into this. Third, we see Jesus needed physical support exiting the grave in a resurrected body. <laughs> think, think about that for a minute. When Jesus came out of the tomb, he came out in a resurrected body. So this text is claiming to be from some like Serapian and others say it's mostly accurate, but there seems to be a hint of docetism. This is teaching some level of resurrection, not Gnostic theology there. But then again, this body comes out and it's potentially resurrected. He was dead in the tomb. Now he's alive and really tall. But I find this odd that the physical resurrected body of Jesus needed help walking out. Look, I mean, if you're in a resurrected state, what do you need support for? You don't need two guys to, I mean, do you forget how to walk? I mean, what's going on here? It's really odd. It says two young men supporting the one. Here's a fourth one. They all appeared as giants, as we talked about. And again, that's likely symbolic. Don't take that in literal sense. It says in the head of the two reaching the heavens, one of them whom he let out by the hand, his head reached beyond the heavens. Another one to consider is an unnamed voice from heaven asking the question, as we state, stated, did you preach to those who sleep? This is where I pause and go, is this really Gnostic teaching? This one causes me to question this view a little bit. Why? Because it's focusing on the dead. 
It's asking, did anybody preach to the dead? Docetism and Gnosticism do not follow the trend of once you're dead, leaving the body is salvation. The physical body has no meaning after you leave. The greatest salvation you can accomplish in the universe and the teaching of Gnosticism is escape the body and go back to the original state of where your soul pre-existed coming into your body. That's what they believed. So why is it relevant if you preach to the dead? That one causes me to question some of the Gnosticism. And then obviously the most ridiculous one of all that we see that I even named the show after today, the cross speaks, says one word. Yes. The cross speaks. You almost don't want that. It's kind of like, do we really want this gospel account? Now note something about this gospel account versus ours. It tries really hard to convince you that Jesus resurrected. It gives you a play-by-play detail that the others do not. Now, if the four gospels were trying to sell you on the resurrection, that's what they would be doing. I mean, this is the climax, folks. This is the climax of the gospels is that Jesus resurrected from the dead and that the tomb is empty. All of Christianity is hinging on that truth. And if that is the climax of all things in the scriptures itself, if that is the consummation of salvation through Christ, is that he conquered death in the grave, resurrecting, if that's the highlight reel, why is it that in all four of our gospels, there is no play-by-play when he's coming out the tomb? What happens? People show up and it's empty. We get some indicators that angels came down, rolled away the the tomb and sat there on the, the stone. I mean, we see that. We don't see this great voice from heaven coming. We see an earthquake, but we don't see this great voice coming in saying, this is my son, or did you go and preach the gospel to the dead? We don't see that. We don't see Jesus busting out in full glory and glamour and shining as bright as the sun and stand. No, we don't, we we don't see that. The most important moment in Christianity is what happened from the time he was in the tomb to the time the stone was rolled away from the tomb. If the four gospels were trying to sell you a story, they blew it. But if they're telling the truth because they weren't there, all they can report is we saw and knew he was put in. When we got there, he was out. As they say in the South, he gone. He was not there anymore. That's all they can report because they weren't there for a play-by-play. Neither were those that the gospel Peter claims is sitting there going, oh man, what's going on around here? You got the religious leaders and over here, you've got the centurions. They're wide awake. Matthew says they freaked out and fell over as dead when they saw these angels. So again, what are we talking about? This is incredible. If the four gospels are trying to sell you on something, why would they not take the moments of Jesus coming out of the tomb and spend an entire section telling you a play-by-play? It's because they weren't reporting something that they wanted. It's because they were reporting something that that happened that they actually were able to see before and after. A tomb with a body in it and a tomb without a body. And then a appearance that came after that. Now, this gospel is really trying to sell you on the resurrection. Again, maybe it's an extra evidence for the resurrection. But then again, I think it's selling it too hard. Number seven, the absence of the post-resurrection appearances. There are zero, zero appearances in this gospel in Jerusalem to Mary Magdalene, who we see a multiple, all the gospels bring up, but John really gives her a highlight moment with Jesus. Peter and John, nope, not here. Or any of the apostles. Clearly no one has seen Jesus resurrected except for these people that were just sitting there nor experience anything similar to the joyous celebrated resurrection that we find in the gospel accounts. None. None of that is in the gospel of Peter. Assuming the disciples did end up recovering from their faith failing and eventually came to believe Jesus had been raised from the dead, it was only weeks later in Galilee that the gospel of Peter picks up. 
not Jerusalem, Galilee. And that's what we see at the very end here. It says, then the women were afraid and fled. Now it was the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Many of the people were going out, returning to their homes since the feast had come to an end. But we, oh, here we are, the 12 disciples of the Lord, continuing weeping and grieving. Now that's interesting. Each one was grieving because of what had taken place. Now this is later. Jesus and the synoptics had already appeared to them in Jerusalem and even said, I'll meet them there. They're now weeks later in Galilee and still grieving, thinking he's completely dead. They're clueless to the resurrection. And they all return to their home. But I, Simon Peter, how nice of him to include his name, and Andrew, my brother, having taken our nets, departed to the sea. And there was Levi, the son of Alphaeus, being Matthew, whom the Lord, and that's where the manuscript cuts off. Don't have any more after that. A few things to take note of in this verse. There's a similar response to the women leaving in fear after you see the news of Jesus giving to them in Matthew 16, or excuse me, Mark 16, verse 8. Next, we see everyone returning home sorrowful and grieving. That's a little bit different. Uh, not so much what we see in the synoptics. Peter, Andrew, Levi went fishing. Then the manuscript cuts off. That's it. So here's my concluding remarks. First, it does not come from the apostles. It's that simple. It cannot be traced to Peter himself. We see numerous evidence, numerous documentation and evidence come in to support the gospel of Mark and Peter being behind it. We have nothing to trace this back to Peter. Nothing. And honestly, the disunity between Mark and this indicate that the source is not the same. It was not received by the churches as a whole. And honestly, it disappeared for 1,200 years, and we still do not have the whole gospel. If this was truly apostolic, why is it that all of the apostolic churches rejected it and we lost it in transmission for 1,200 years, and then we find it in a tomb, and up to this day, we still do not have the whole story? That wasn't Nicaea. That was the apostolic churches not accepting as apostolic. I agree with Brown and Ehrman that this document was created by someone who was writing based on their memory and based on oral tradition. Also, it should be noted that nowhere in the Gospel of Peter is the name Jesus or Christ represented in the surviving manuscript. Now, hear me. In the manuscript we have, it may have earlier, but we don't have it. But what we do have, those two names are not mentioned. He is always referred to as Lord or the Son of God. However, he is called Jesus in the quotation I gave you from 2 Clement. 5, 2 through 4, which does not have manuscript support to this day. And I do want to say this. There are good historical helps in this document. These are historical writings. Whether we like it or not, regardless of how we feel about this gospel account, it is still a historical writing from antiquity. It is a document that we should examine and study that God in his providence has allowed us to have in research. We should not reject it completely. Yes, it is not apostolic. Yes, I agree. We should not accept it into our canon. But on the other hand, it should be studied. God allowed us to have access to it. There are some important details in this book that can teach us more about customs, places, tendencies in those days. They help demonstrate the authenticity of the canonical gospels, if you ask me. Comparing the accounts of the original four with the various non-canonical gospels like this one, it truly demonstrates how majestic and unified the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really are. To me, that's an important thing to note. So this is what we've talked about today. This is the Gospel of Peter. And one of the things that I want to say about it is let's study it. Let's examine it. We see important data given. Perhaps the, the writer um, gave us the name of a true centurion based on oral tradition. Perhaps Petronius was really the name of the guy that was out there leading the regime to guard the tomb. And it tells us the garden's name that Jesus was buried in, and it called it the Garden of Joseph. Well, that makes sense. It was Joseph's tomb. Maybe the garden was also named after him. Perhaps that's correct. There are interesting perspectives within this. So let's jump in. We just got a few minutes here uh, to take some questions. Uh, let me go through some of these uh, real quick. A lot of good, lots of um, good conversation and uh, salutations and so forth. Thank you for posting that. 
uh, blog for me, as well as posting the translation, Finding Truth. There's the link if you have missed it. Uh, Don Fullman, I'm traveling from Jacksonville, Florida to work. I'm excited for this subject. Peter seems to be using a lot of analogies and not firsthand information. I agree, which I believe, again, goes back to what we were talking about, I think is based on oral tradition or things that he had been taught and heard and may have been misunderstood on, but trying to go from memory. And that's consistent because you really don't see direct quotes like you do in some of the other accounts. Explain International, how does the Greek of the Gospel of Peter line up with 1 Peter? Do you leave Peter wrote 2 Peter? If so, could you touch on the issue of style when comparing all these? No, um, no, the 1 Peter's Greek is not like this one. And again, it's an 8th and 9th century manuscript. A lot can happen from point A to point B or however many down the line this manuscript we have is. If it's second century, you're talking about 700 years or so, six, 700 years later. But when you're talking about second Peter, I don't want to get lost in this too much. Um, I do believe second Peter was written by Peter. I've actually done some interview discussions on this. Um, I do not think Peter penned either one of them. In fact, first Peter is very clear uh, that it wasn't him. Uh, he was the author. He was claiming to be the author, but not the writer. Uh, Silvanus or Silas was his amenuensis. He mentions that at the very end of First Peter. Or it is possible that Second Peter had a different amenuensis, which really accounts for the differences in Greek, or that Peter himself actually wrote it feeling apostolic to a church who just lost Paul to martyrdom. Uh, one of those two things is possible, and there's other reasons. I don't want to get lost in that, but yeah, I do. I think there's more explanations to the differences in Greek than just there were two different authors. But I would say that Second Peter's Greek is not like this, and neither was First um, uh, Peter's Greek. Uh, good question, though. Good question. Uh, explain international. How cool would it be if they find the rest of the gospel according Peter? I, I'd be excited. I would volunteer. They wouldn't let me. They kick me out. Say, so, you know, get out of here. But I'd volunteer to be a part of translating it because. Um, I've already enjoyed the amount of translation work that I did on what we do have. Uh, if they found the rest of it, I hope it's in Greek and I hope they give me a random phone call. I would never expect to say, Hey, why don't you come on and help us out, help us translate this. Uh, but that would be pretty awesome. Uh, Santi, if they did, I think Jesus was pointing out Psalm 22 when he said at the first sentence, the writer seems not to be aware of this. Yeah, there, there does seem to be a disconnect. I would agree with that, which why I said this has magnificent ramifications if at the end of the day we have power my power you have forsaken me rather than my god my god why have you forsaken me and what you don't find from from what's in there by the way uh slam rn which is uh, uh something to point out as well you don't see a lot of old testament again th the writer to me seems anti-semitic at times and i do not see old testament tendencies in the gospel of of peter you don't see it i i find that odd in of itself. Uh, but thank you for sharing that. Don Fullman, if there was an earthquake during this time period, shouldn't we be able to verify through secular means that this happened? Seems like a significant event. Yeah. And that's debated in the uh, synoptic accounts as well about the earthquake. But this would be um, an interesting discussion because you'd have back to back. And I don't want to get into the arguments of was it a real earthquake versus something caused the earth to quake based on the power that came down or the movement, like rather than it was like the whole city felt it, it was just in that section, the ground shook. I don't really want to get into that in this program, but there are other options that are available, but yeah, some of this should be able to be traced and some have actually done some extensive research on this as well. In fact, I think that's what's being said here. There has been some recent evidence found for an earthquake during that time period. Yes. And, and, <laughs> Slam's always ahead of me. Uh, she makes sure that uh, she's answering a lot of questions before I even have to. And she saves me a lot of time in the comment section. But yes, um, <laughs> agreed. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Petronius sounds very <laughs> Harry Potter. Probably so. But I think Harry Potter was much, much later. I'm not really that up on it. Just remember it during the first century Jerusalem. Okay, so you guys were talking about the earthquake. Uh, that's really cool. Earthquake has been known to release electric energy and it's okay. Yeah. You guys are going on and on about that. And that's a good discussion to have amongst yourself. Uh, really good stuff there. Uh, and I see y'all are still carrying on that conversation. Th that's good. And again, what we want to do is examine these things, put it to the test. 
But what seems to be the case here in Peter's gospel is a change of scenery. And I'm not so sure I agree with that. It seems like it was later tradition details were mixed up and messed up. That seems to be the case to me. All right. So thank you for joining in uh, and listening to this podcast and program. We're going to jump in next week to the gospel of Thomas and look at 114 saints, not a 114, but we'll look at some of the details there. Again, thanks for joining in. Please like and share this video. Grace and peace to you.